save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Over the past several weeks, we've been discussing the various facets of facing the tipping points that are being reached across the globe. And today, we're going to face a couple more with my returning guest, Nigel Kuhn, who you might remember was part of the Wild Eyes CITES team in 2016, and he also works very closely with Rory Young at Chungeta Wildlife Anti-Poaching Units in Mali, and he recently just returned from a stint in Antarctica. So right now you may be wondering what this has to do with our theme of facing tipping points and facing day zero and infinite growth on a finite planet. So today we're going to venture into some polar extremes using Molly and how they're gearing up to recycle their plastic wastes and waste management and how the Antarctic is working to minimize waste in a country with no borders comprised of mostly researchers but has a growing international tourism base who must learn how to manage their waste. So, welcome back, Nigel. Thanks, Lily. It's great to have you here. So, um, you just returned. You, you're in France, in Lyon, so you've been there for a few weeks, right? Yeah, um, I just returned from Mali, um, and I've been in France for two weeks, basically improving my friends uh, for working in West Africa. All right, so um, you went from Mali to Antarctica. How did that happen, and what were you doing? And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, what what did you learn? What did you have to do? The extremes you faced from a sun-seared desert to the world's coldest snow-covered desert. Um, I I left Mali last year in, I think it was the 30th of November, Jumped on a flight to London, caught the next flight to South Africa, to Joburg, and then I was on the next flight to Cape Town. But how it all happened is I was recommended by a, a friend of mine um, to uh, a family member of hers who's a researcher at Rhodes University in, um, in South Africa. And normally they take out field assistants that have some sort of background in 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 research or, in this case, Antarctica and um, uh, crevasse rescue and things like that, which are really important. And her field assistant dropped out at the last minute, and she she wouldn't have been able to go to Antarctica if she didn't have someone to back her up. So my name was given to her as uh, a recommendation, and, of course, I jumped at the chance. At the very least, it's a, it, it was a non-paid trip but I didn't have to spend a cent um, to get there. All my clothing was taken care of. My food was taken care of. So I went from 40 degrees or 46 degrees centigrade to minus 10. Uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a, a huge transition for me. And um, it's, it's, it was probably one of the, the greatest times of my life. So that's quite an extreme. Had you ever been in any place that cold before? 
Uh, when I was serving with the British Army in Kosovo in 1999, uh, it got down to minus 27. And with wind chill, it got down to minus 35. So you were uh, somewhat emotionally and mentally prepared for this. Yeah, I was. I was, yeah. Um, look, there's 20 years difference between the two almost. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, experienced that cold before, yeah. So let's let's learn a little bit about Antarctica here. It's a continent with no permanent residence. Many researchers that stay for certain periods of time. There's 75 research stations that have been established. There's the Antarctic Treaty that stipulates that Antarctica is a continent dedicated to peace and research. Seven nations have made claims there, and about 30 of the countries that have signed the Antarctic Treaty. So there's one permanent harbor at harbor at McMurdo Station, and um, there's good reasons that the research is done there because it's clean, it's pristine. There's no permanent residence. But now, what we're facing to get back to our topic here is an increasing tourist population that is leaving a footprint that previously was not there and sorry to say but the majority of them are from asia china with uh, an increase of you know wealth to be able to do this kind of travel so if you've already done everything there is to do on earth the uh, last thing to do would be to go visit antarctica and um, you know that costs about fifty one thousand dollars for a, a trip there so even china has had to um, recently, I'm talking about just February 2018, to um, put out rulings, new list of rules of people visiting no hunting, no leaving behind solid waste, and no touching or feeding the penguins, and minimize their footprints, So and ban them from taking part of any activities that could harm or disturb the wildlife, and inspectors, inspectors are watching them. So you were at the research base. So did you have any interface with the tourist population or their impacts and that versus the researchers' outlook and um, their rules of leave, leave nothing behind? Um, okay, I suppose the best way for me to answer your questions is to sort of relate my experience there and, and what, I, what we did. Um, yeah. The, the, the rules with... The, within the researchers, there's sort of an unwritten rule with, within the Antarctic researchers um, that anything taken into Antarctica has to be taken out. And this also includes, you know, if you go out on a, a, on a sort of a, a seven-day data collection trip where you, you're ostensibly camping in Antarctica, um, you take bags for your human waste um, because you don't leave that out there. There's, there's rules that, you know, um, obviously – you go out for the day and you, you're drinking coffee and that and you've got to relieve yourself. And that's, that's an unavoidable thing. But to minimize the impact is, is to never to, to relieve yourself on a hard surface, so a stone or a, a piece of ground or something like that. You always use snow. And the reason is, is because the snow will act as a bit of a filter so it disperses your, your bacteria and your sort of enzymes which are foreign to Antarctica. That's they won't then uh, change the, 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 the resident bacteria's activities and they won't also affect the resident uh, wildlife populations of which there was only two bird populations or two bird species that I came across. 
So those are the two sort of um, waste disposal, human waste disposal um, sort of rules that we had to abide by. So solid waste had to go into a bag. I'm surprised that liquid waste didn't have to go into a container. The, the sort of containers we had were, were water containers. Um, I never actually went on a, a camping trip. Unfortunately, we, we got stuck in some really horrendous weather. So the, the, wind, the wind is so strong that there's weight classifications as, as to the, the weight you need to be to go outside. And the researcher I was with, uh, she, she weighed a little bit less than I did. Um, but even for myself, you know, a, a, a 35, 40 knot wind in a whiteout, that's it. You, it. Antarctica is one of those places which will kill you in a second. Um, it, actually, it is the most dangerous place I've ever sort of gone to um, weather-wise. So you need to be of a certain body weight to be able to withstand these these winds absolutely i mean some of the winds will 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 blow you you know off course and it's all you know a lot of it is snow and the ice and if you're standing on a piece of ice and you get blown off there's there's nothing to actually anchor you down so you could be blown kilometers um so, so like what we see in movies where they have ropes and guidelines those are for people to follow in these storms those are usually like within the research camp linking building to building but once you're outside of that zone you're on your own yes absolutely so you know for instance at the south african base um for um for the base to have water we we melted snow and what we'd do is we'd go out to the smelter but there was a a a rope linking the base to the, the smelter so that. And, and no one was allowed to go further than that to, if, if the weather got bad. If it got really bad, you couldn't even go to the smelter. And there was a situation a few, uh, few years ago, probably about 15 years ago, when a, a South African Air Force pilot um, went out, I think, to his accommodation, left the main hall to go to his accommodation, and he was the uh, medic. And he, got, he, he wasn't holding the rope, and he got found three days later – and he was he was frozen alive, frozen when well, he was dead. Oh my goodness! But, yeah, so it is it is an extremely extremely temperamental uh, consonant. Back to the waste. So what what the what the the, the big uh, research stations do is all of the waste is compacted, so it's all compacted, and then it gets put onto the ships and taken back to the country for waste disposal. So there's, there's, you know, there's, there's no bearing of waste. There's no, um, you know, people will make sure that, you know, I went out to, to collect data samples. But we were making sure that even the tiny little bits of, of paper or tape that we were pulling off the poles went into our pockets and, you know, the zips were up and nothing got sort of blown away because it really, it, it, nothing, decompose, nothing decomposes there. So I can imagine the storage facilities for waste alone at these various research stations must be rather on the massive scale. Well, they are big, um, but most research stations have between, um, let's say, in the winter, you have about six to ten people that stay in the research station over six months, and they're just there to keep things going and keep everything sort of 
ticking along because it's it's dark 24 hours a day. Uh, it, it the coldest temperature was minus 87, I think, at uh, the Novo station, which is the Russian station, which was 300 kilometers away from us. And um, in the in the summer, then that you know the, you got a new complement of people who come in, so it takes you up to 12, and you get probably another 15 or 20 that come in for maintenance and servicing and that. So you could be looking at 35 people for six months, which isn't a huge amount, but obviously waste does get generated, and that's you know that 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 waste needs to leave. And we're talking about the researchers who, within the Antarctic Antarctic Treaty, um, these rules for waste are somewhat written. I I got a quick glance at that, but we're talking about. Um, up to, I think there's a growing population of 45,000 tourists visiting Antarctica and um, a whole set of rules that are being, are working to be emplaced for visitors who come from anywhere to six to seven uh, to ten days. So, I mean, listeners, just think about that little uh, energy bar that you carry in the pocket or when you put your hands in your uh, winter coat pockets, all the stuff at the bottom of that pocket. You know, you can't let any of that go. Anything that we bring in bacteria-wise, so if it's um, an apple core, you know, you you throw your apple core out, you know, in, in, in your, your, your compost heap because it's going to decompose and that. But that apple core now is going to introduce bacteria into a, a continent which has its own sort of, structure and bacterial makeup and what I think and I'm not a scientist so I'm, I'm talking from what, I, what I've asked the scientists but that, that bacteria could create whole new sort of colonies of bacteria but it could also change the existing structures wow. so in a, in a continent where there's only two bird species um, inland which is the snow petrel and the skewer and they're the only species the only other animal I saw was a tiny little mite um, on one of the rocks. And that's, that's, those are the only animals. But one of the, one of the fascinating things that uh, we sort of did is, is, is we were collecting samples of, or bacterial samples that used to cluster onto quartz rocks. And these sort of bacterial samples resembled what you'd, think is probably a grass or a, not a grass, maybe a moss or something like that. It's kind of like a lichen, um, but uh, th- those are the only sort of fauna uh, or flora um, that there is in Antarctica. So there's not a lot of diversity. So anything that we do introduce, it, if it changes something, it's going to change everything, wow. Um, wow. Which, which could be devastating for, for the rest of the world. We don't know. Not enough research has been done. Wow, this is fascinating. Whoops, actually, we need to stop and take a little break here. So uh, stick with us. We're going to visit another part of uh, the world with Nigel and the sun-seared deserts of Mali. So we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild. 
No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back, Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest, Nigel Kuhn, who has just recently returned from Antarctica, the coldest place on Earth. And uh, it's a desert. Very little flora, very little fauna. As Nigel said, he saw two bird species. And we're talking about what human waste and our footprint uh, leaves behind in a world where we're fast-reaching Tipping points. So, in a place like Antarctica, what we do there leaves a lasting imprint. So, um, Nigel, tell us some of the stories about when you would go out data collecting, what you would see, and the precautions you had to take. Sure. So, with 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 both researchers, one was a, one was a geomorphologist, and um, that was Ian, and Gwen was a microbiologist. So with Ian, what we were doing is we were well, both both researchers, um, but particularly with Ian, we were studying the change in the temperature of permafrost over the years. So Ian had had data collectors in there for 10 years, and he had been able to track the changes in the, the, the permafrost, which is directly linked to global warming, over a 10-year period. And I'll, I'll get back to that, um, but... We were so careful with, with, you know, when we peeling the tape off the, you know, the, the, the sort of gorilla tape off the, the, the poles that were holding these data collectors. But these pieces of gorilla tape were 
had been reduced to rice paper, such as the, the sort of force, uh, environmental force of Antarctica. So we were very careful to sort of put all those back into our pockets, and there were a couple of times where a piece of tape would break off and it would go flying off in the wind, and we'd actually run after it to grab it and sort of put it in our pockets so we didn't leave it out there. And the first thing that struck me was Ian, as we're walking up to this dodge collector, Ian looked across and he, he pointed at what to me looked like a sort of a, an unnatural ridge in the ground. And he said, that's one of the tracks from the snowmobiles from last year, wow. which completely blew me away because we've, we've had a six-month winter. There's been snowstorms. There's been, but, you know, there's, there's been sunlight. There's been snowfall. There's been all of this. And that little bit of human contact is there a year later. That's amazing. I mean, that's very similar to the deserts in Mali in terms of it receives so little rainfall that any impact that we do in these places, you can also see our traces uh, a year later. I'm trying to picture this with these gale force winds, the freeze and the, the little bit of thaw and the freeze and the thaw that you could see a snowmobile track from a year later that presses in my mind that the snow is not sticking, that the permafrost and the snow, the ground cover that you're seeing has been there for a long time, eons, and what you're looking for is climate change, but that it's not getting any deeper per se. Yeah, so it actually doesn't snow a heck of a lot in Antarctica. Um a lot of the snow that we see and the ice, some of, some of the ice is up to 3 million years old, um, which is unbelievable. So most of the snow actually just blows around. So Antarctica is actually the largest, coldest desert in the world. Antarctica is bigger than the, the size of continental USA. Um, it's bigger than Australia. And the whole continent is a desert. So if we now look at at the similarities between Antarctica and Mali, where Mali as well does not receive a, a huge amount of rain. It also has a, a hugely finite resource of water available and food available. The, the other similarities between Mali and Antarctica is both of them are seeing a growing population. One is a transient population of tourists, and the other is a, a sort of a, a more um, homogenous population, if that's the right word, to, which is now going to sort of stay. Um, and they, they, they both are struggling at the moment. Actually, the research base is going to grow, according to some of the links that you had sent, sent me, that um, China has a five-year plan uh, that started in 2017 uh, with the government to invest huge amounts of money in projects toward exploration of both poles. And China already has four Antarctic research sites. And as of just last Wednesday, they began working on a fifth, which should be ready by 2022. So between China's research sites and a huge increase in Chinese tourism, right before we started um, talking today, you had mentioned that uh, there's been talks of opening research sites to tourism. So we can imagine the mess that would create. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that from being on your end of logistics and the care taken at the research sites? 
you know, with, with scientists who, who are so careful um, to be as delicate as they can with their footprint. And, the, you know, another thing, and one, it wasn't one of the links I sent to you, but the, the most advanced buildings and, and, and sort of um, construction and building designs are actually in Antarctica. If you look at the German base, Neumeyer, Neumeyer um, the British bases, they, they are built in such a way that they, they lessen the impact that they have or their footprint the Brazilian base, I believe, loses less than 3% of its heat to the, the, the outside climate. So the, 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 the scientists are extremely careful. But now the average tourist, and when I say the average tourist, it can be a rich tourist, it can be a poor tourist who has a, or who likes the idea of being, you know, having a conservationist approach, is not going to be as careful as, as this, the, the scientists. He might drop a sandwich here, he might drop a crust there, um, he might pick up an egg and, uh, or, or do something, or he might walk towards a bird which is, you know, nest on its young, and that bird then exposes itself and the skewers then come in and, and, and attack the young and, you know, kill the young. So it's so easy to have an impact without realizing you're having an impact. And these these spaces that are inland are so hard to get to, for instance. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So we were flying, we were using a helicopter to fly from the base to some of the furthest data collection points. And we were trying to do all in one day so that we would minimize the amount of flying time, um, which would minimize the sort of the disruption that the helicopters caused in that. And the one day that, we decided we were going to go out. We decided not to, like, straight away. And it, was, it turned out to be a good good sort of um, idea for us because four days, we were now stuck in the base for four days. The weather had come in. It was so bad we couldn't see three feet in front of us. Then, in desperation, the Swedish team that was with us wanted to drop some, some fuel bases into um, sort of a location that they could go to on the, the snowmobiles, they could refuel and they could carry on with their journey without having to come back to base. And in desperation to do it after being stuck in the base for four days, decided that there was a sort of a half-hour window where they thought, okay, the weather's great, let's go out. So they went, the, the South African helicopters arrived, they picked up the Swedish uh, um, researchers, they went off into the, the, the desert or the, the, the sort of outside areas and within 15 minutes of them leaving, the skies had been blue. Within 15 minutes of them leaving, we couldn't see three feet past the base. The, 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 the weather that had come in was probably the worst weather we'd seen in, in sort of two weeks. And the South Africans had to land sort of in the desert. When I say the desert, they had to, they had to land sort of on, on an ice shelf. And they had to just wait because um, they couldn't fly into the base. And they could have been out there for two weeks. Um, and a, research, a, re, a rescue um, a attempt was launched on the snowmobiles to bring back the Swedish researchers. And it, it, it really it turns into an absolute nightmare. And now if you've got 60 to 100 tourists out there and they are bobbing around outside on, on snowmobiles, and the weather turns. You're going to have people going down crevasses. You're going to have 
um, sort of search and rescue operations. And it's going to, I'll tell you what's going to happen is it's the research bases that are now going to have to start rescuing the tourists and not doing the research. So it really is a, it's, it's a, it's a continent that, that no one really understands how dangerous it is. And I think a lot of people will die. And uh, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think this would be a terrible idea. And how sensitive this, this continent is. Although it's the coldest and severe weather, it's incredibly sensitive to anything that we humans would do on it. So um, I'd say it's a very bad idea with you as well. I'd agree. I don't think we need to open every place up on Earth to tourism. I think there's some places we should just leave alone and allow um, research to careful, uh, considered research to take place so that we understand Earth better and Earth systems and the life that lives in these extremes um, so we can better understand how to live a little more gently on the rest of the planet. So let's segue over to Mali and uh, the waste there. So we've we understand now how critical it is to manage waste in a severe area like Antarctica. It's almost a no-brainer, not quite, but almost. And then we move over to Mali, which is very populated, but it's the same kind of extreme as Antarctica. It's just very hot, low rainfall, and different pressures from these um, polar opposite of extremes. So Mali, in terms of its waste management, is looking to create new waste management systems, right? In in terms of uh, renew, recycle, and reuse plastics, because plastics are a huge problem, not only in Africa, everywhere. Tell us some of what your experiences are of seeing waste and waste management in Mali. Um, okay, to be honest, I've seen no evidence of waste management in Mali. Um, there is, I've, I've actually just spent three weeks in, in Bamako now, um, seeing the various partners um, that we, we have in the anti-poaching um, world there, um, having meetings to, to make sure that you know, the rest of the year is planned because we've got all this training coming up. And it actually... The three weeks in Mali shocked me a lot. Uh, sorry, in Bamako, because normally I'm there for a day and I don't really get to see Bamako that much. But Bamako, and I believe West Africa, and if West Africa has a problem, the rest of Africa also has a problem. But there's the, the, the sort of the culture that I've seen of, of single-use plastics, so little bag, water bags, um, people you know drink their water, Throw uh, throw the bag onto the ground. Um, they they have their cheap Chinese shoes, which it almost looks at, like they've been run out, like they've run out of them. They they sort of just left lying on the road. And quite often we'll see sheep, donkeys, cattle rummaging around these waste tips, looking for morsels to to eat. So I haven't really seen anything like that and to read that the Moroccans have are about to introduce a, a waste management system and over the next five years I really hope that and if they do it's, it will see a massive change but 
there has to be a culture change in a place like Mali and in the whole world um, and how we view our own um, utilization of, 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 of products. So it's not just it's not just the plastics that's the problem. It's, it's humans. We're the problem. We, we've got to change from single use to think, okay, how many times can I use this again? What's going to happen to that if I throw it on the ground? Or if I throw this in the bin, where is it going to end up? I think that's what we have to start asking ourselves. And we've got to take responsibility for our own actions if we want the whole world to, to sort of go through a change. Well, and, you know, we've reached tipping points where our waste is piling up. I mean, the, the first world, the U.S. and Europe, we ship our waste to third developing worlds for them to recycle, reuse, pick through, and the conditions of the people who are doing that are horrendous. So when we throw out our electronics and our single-use products, they're piling up everywhere. We're carting it around the world. Think of the carbon footprint of that. For someone else to be a low-paid job to sort through it and all the associated uh, diseases, sickness, and everything that goes with waste buildup, and you and I were talking about what's going to be the next thing that happens on planet Earth, and it will most likely be a plague. So we're looking at extremes, and it's we keep for, pushing them into the future where we need to deal with this now. So in terms of Africa, I've always thought that it, most of their waste was biodegradable because that's how they lived until we introduced man-made things, plastics, metals, uh, electronics, and things like that, that don't uh, decompose. So I often thought that with the mentality or the mindset of the third world, waste was never a problem because it decomposed. Now all this has exponentially increased on matters of scale because of so many more people, and now we have waste that doesn't decompose. It just piles up. So um, in Mali with Obamaco leasing out a waste uh, to Morocco uh, waste management, this will be very interesting. And if it can scale up and be replicated across the continent and elsewhere, this will be a good thing. But right now we are drowning in our own wastes. And as you, if our listeners listen to the last few episodes, we have already overshot sustainability. If you start looking at bottling plants that are already geared up to continue making plastic bottles 5, 10, 15 years in the future. And that's the corporate growth model. So it, as Nigel just said, it comes down to us to change how we're going to do things. So we need to step away for a break and we'll be right back. And Nigel and I are going to talk about this a little bit more. So stick with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. 
Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Our Wild World. I'm Ellie, and my guest is Nigel Kuhn. And we've been talking about the polar extremes between Antarctica and what happens with waste there, how careful it is to a place like Mali. Same kind of conditions, sear desert, but hot and a huge population, and what is happening with waste there. So, Nigel, we were just getting into who is responsible for cleaning up our waste. Um, I think you just told me China is no longer accepting waste from Europe. So let's let's go into that a little bit and then segue into how are we going to fix this problem? Sure. So basically China has just um, this year said they're not going to be accepting any more waste, plastic waste. And what this has brought, obviously brought to light is that a lot of Western nations have found it far easier to ship their waste off to China than create some sort of solution within their own country to deal with their own plastic waste. But now this also brings to light that, you know, you've got a lot of poorer countries in West Africa, you know, like uh, the Gambia or, or um, Sierra Leone or um, Liberia, sorry, thank you. And they... They have very poor infrastructures for dealing with vast amounts of waste, let alone their own waste they produce. And what's what's sort of coming to light is a lot of these these countries have been paid to take this waste as this, these rubbish dumps and and create these sort of rubbish dumps and go through them and filter out the waste and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's just a it's an easy way 
for the West to get rid of a problem and it's no longer in their, their eyes. So it's, it's now someone else's problem. And what, what sort of needs to happen, and it's one of those leading from the front. So instead of saying, do what I tell you to do, do what I do. So, you know, the UK now has to, to uh, get its act together and within the next couple of years create some sort of um, program for dealing with its own waste. Um, and they're looking at models that are in Norway and Scandinavia, and Norway and Scandinavia are always so far ahead. They seem to take more responsibility for their own uh, sort of affairs than, than some of these other countries in Europe. And, you know, from an African point of view, a country like Rwanda, which has no plastic bags and hasn't had plastic bags for 15 years, it has the best way of dealing with their rubbish, that they don't have these massive rubbish dumps. They don't have, you know, litter blowing on the roads, on the streets like they, you know, like you do in, in Mali or even in Zimbabwe and South Africa. And it's a, definitely a step in the right direction. And perhaps what we do need is a, a, a private company that can come in and find a way of, of utilizing this waste in such a way as either making plastic bottles or doing whatever it's going to do. You know, to, to be able to create money out of, out of this waste is, is the only way really that, that we're going to get out of it. And with such a huge poor population in Africa, to be able to get a deposit back for your bottle or something like that, you can have all of the, 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 the people who are living on the fringe of society picking up waste because they know they're going to get paid for it. And without... A, a dedicated waste disposal system or waste collection system, I think this is the best way of doing things. So like they do in Norway where you put a bottle into the bottle bank, the bottle bank will be able to see what kind of bottle it's come in and it will give you a ticket to say, well, this is what you can go and redeem from wherever it is and you get 30 cents back on the bottle or 20 cents back on the bottle. Within a couple of years, you're going to have no more waste and that's that's – you know, that's the way that I would deal with it personally. Well, th that's an excellent solution. It's going to deal with, you know, a certain percentage proportion of the waste. But um, our model of the West is not only to ship our, you know, wasteful waste, that which we don't reuse elsewhere and, you know, ship the problem to somebody else's shores. But now our waste is in the oceans these um garbage patch the gyries in the oceans it's going into the rivers you know <clears throat> plastic nurdles are down into the smallest source of the food chain and now recently as of a couple of weeks ago a poached elephant in zambia, zambia was found with plastic waste in its stomach so plastic is everywhere so it's not going to only be about privatizing a company I think the individual, this is where the individual matters. And I think that's going to be the surge in how we solve this problem, is every individual needs to take responsibility for their own waste. And they do that by watching their consumer dollar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'll go into a shop and I will buy biscuits. And the biscuits will come in a, a cardboard box. And then inside that cardboard box there will be uh, three biscuits put into little plastic bags, uh, plastic bags packed into the box, which I don't know if that's... You can get rid of one layer of waste there. Whatever it is, but automatically you've got... Why is that plastic there? I mean, 
That it happened does. to me the other <laughs> night. I I yeah. was at the grocery store and I bought a box of pre-made Indian food and I opened the box and inside that was a plastic bag to put in the microwave to heat it up. Yeah. It didn't so need the box. It doesn't need to be there. And you know, with 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 people taking um responsibility for their own plastic waste, it, it automatically creates a situation where I'm taking responsibility for myself and I'm gonna be watching and you know, not to to hunt down or to, you know, pick on people, but if I see someone doing something or I see something I don't like, it's gonna it's gonna resonate with me. And if enough people are sort of with are feeling that, that same sort of um, level of consciousness, that's when a change comes because then myself and and you and and you know the, the thousands of other people like us living in the same town will now go to the governor or whoever it is and start putting pressure on them to say we need to change the law like packaging we we can't have plastic packaging and that's how that's how um, worlds are changed and it starts off and it's, it always sounds corny but it starts off with one person if one person changes his thoughts he's not the only person that's done it it's kind of like a it's almost like a chemical reaction where one person starts changing his thought and it's 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 because of something that's happened or something that's been seen or something that's that's you know kind of thing so one person is actually one one in ten are changing their thought patterns at the same time and collectively this consciousness and then, you know with the, in this day of communication um, it, it, it's easy to build up an avalanche of thought processes or uh, ideas it's kind and of that, like a law of physics you know of exponentiality <clears throat> and as, you know six degrees of separation the 12th monkey, monkey or even like trap neuter return if you don't get 75% of that population it's not going to work so we need this groundswell movement of everybody taking responsibility to get to this 75% where our public and individual pressure will change the corporate model DNA, as we talked about last week with uh, Aaron Vandiver, that we change this corporate structure to care and be That's affected it. by the individual. Well, you know, I've just, so I've been in France for two weeks now, and I sort of, I'm at a point now where I can sort of read small stories in the paper and I can, you know, I can get by and France is, I've just seen an article that says France has just banned all plastic utensils and single use plastic in plates. I saw an article on that. Yeah. So, but now another thing that's happened is the, the, the government of France have just voted to double the size of the wolf population in France. So, the, the the government here, it's a very young government. Obviously, Macron is he's, he's 39. He's a very charismatic leader. But he's also surrounded himself with very young people. And I noticed this when I was in Zimbabwe, is that the young, the young kids that I was encountering had a very different idea of what they, how they viewed their world and what they thought was important than their parents did. So there's definitely a generational gap that, that sort of needs to, you know, needs to be breached almost. Um, but th there's all these amazing things that are happening in France which are going to benefit the environment. And this is one of the things where what we've just been talking about now is, is 
is if you're going to be a world leader, you need to lead from the front. You need to say, well, we've done this because this is actually the right thing to do. And we've got one planet. So we're not just going to tell you guys what to do. We're going to do it. And we're going to then find the best way of doing it. And then, you know what? We can help you achieve the same thing. How does that sound? And that's that's the way to change it. And, it, it, you know, you were talking about this gap, this um, translation gap between my generation, 60s, and the generation of 15-year-olds that are inheriting our waste and our problems and trying to figure out a way to create a future that has the same planet and the same joys and the same beauty and the same ecosystems that we got to enjoy, but we're, uh, over these past 50 years, have been busily uh, destroying. So um, this millennial issue is sort of where the translation and knowledge gap has taken place. So it really is up to my generation and the 15-year-olds to groundswell up to this and fill this gap. Absolutely. You know, I've seen the, I've seen the phrase of, of we, we've got to treat the world because it's the only world we're going to leave to the next generation. I think the next generation has actually already, for want of a better phrase, got their hands on it and said, okay, actually, you know what, we're going to now, we're going to do it. We're going to, because let's also remember that but it's, it's because of the mistakes of one group of people that allow the next group of people to learn from or not learn from those mistakes and not repeat them. So if, if we hadn't made those mistakes, then who's to say that this sort of new thought processes would you know, it's always, life is about building blocks. And, um, okay, that hasn't worked. Okay, how about we do that? Okay, that's caused a bit of a problem. But, oh, you know what? We can use that problem now to fix that. And, you know, so that's kind of how the world works. And I think I think what we need to do is it's, it's, it's not step away, but it's to allow for everyone to throw their ideas into the bag and ruminate and discuss and argue. And, and, and through that, that's where we'll suddenly get this, 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 this new path that we can take. But it has, to, it has to be dialogue between everyone. I totally agree with that. And that's part of, you know, where we're stuck right now is in these, all these national boundaries and you know, let's say Trump thinking, you know, America lives under its own bubble and that what we do doesn't affect elsewhere or vice versa. Everything we do now affects everything else. And the science, the data, the common sense – tells us that Earth is one huge connected web and what we do affects everything, which in the end affects us. So it's a circular thing. So we have to start changing the paradigm of our own thought processes. We're We're drowning under our own waste of various kinds. Science is not going to solve the problem. Technology is great, but we need the wisdom to use it properly and as Nigel was just saying new thought processes and new new young minds that have grown up with this that never knew it any other way and are coming up with creative uh, linkages to recreate and relook at the problems that we're kind of stuck in yeah absolutely so you know for all us folks out there that are feeling hopeless and feeling despair about where the world is, you, we can flip this and look at 
as I've often said, you know, unprecedented challenges provide unprecedented opportunities to do it differently. And that's where we are right now here at 2018 as we rapidly see how quickly all of this is building up and coming back to bite us. So now is the time Earth is hiring. Wherever you are, wherever you may be, you know, the dreamers, um, education, putting thoughts together, young people, this is the time we need you more than ever. And for you know, Nigel's age group, my age group, we all have to start breaking down the barriers of keeping us separate to pulling together to solve global issues. So it's, what is this, the saying? Think lo- global, act local, because it's all connected. Um, no, I was just going to say that um, that's one of the things that has um, sort of kept me going with my photography and my film is always sort of spreading awareness about these different places in the world that, that most people never get to see, but they're out there and they're important and they affect how we live our daily lives as well. So, And, and that's fabulous. I mean, you're a rare person, Nigel. You, um, Your skill sets and your personality and your abilities uh, have given you opportunities to do things that many people would never have the opportunity to do, maybe not even dreamt about doing. And we need people like you to help connect these dots and share your experiences and your knowledge. So I, for one, thank you very much. I learned a lot today. Thanks, Elliot. It was fantastic being on you. So once again, thank you. We're out of time. But Nigel, you're going to come back because you're heading back to Mali now. Yeah, we're heading back to Mali. Uh, We've got Central African Republic on the cards as well. And uh, we've also got another Southern African country that have asked us to come back in and uh, do some more training. So we've got a full year ahead. And this is with Chengeta? This is all with Chengeta, yes. All right. So folks, stay on top of what's going on with Chengeta on their Facebook page. Stay up on Wild Eyes and Our Wild World on Facebook and our website, www.wildeyes.org, because there is a lot of great things happening on planet Earth. So it's time to come together and dig in, and we've got work to do. So until next time, go out and look at your wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.